Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled The Unwrapped Gift was given by Chris Winand on March 13th of 2011. Thank you. Thank you. I need some faith here. All of you who are redheads, just put up your hands. All right. I have my eldest daughter lives in Perth, Australia, married to a six foot four redhead. They lead a church in Perth. And she is expectant with our third grandchild. So we have a blonde grandson, Ezekiel. We have a blonde, this is her name, Lady Ella Serenity. Yeah. (laughs) Affectionately called Ella, but acts like a lady and brings no serenity whatsoever. (laughs) They are blonde. My daughter, 24 years old will give us our third grandbaby in June. Meryl and I are desperate for a redhead. So all you redheads, we need your faith. We need you to agree with us that red is good. It's beautiful. It's colorful. It's exotic. It's mysterious. We need your faith. I love talking about Jesus. I came to faith as an 18-year-old in 1976. As a college student, long hair, jeans, t-shirt, Um, I said to Jesus, I need to know if you're real. I find absolutely no value whatsoever in niceness if there isn't a God and there isn't an afterlife. Why be nice? And I lay on my bed in my parents' uh, room, at my parents' home, and I said, Jesus, come into my life. I'd love to tell you that it was very explosive and powerful and full of amazing things. The only thing that happened is he gave me peace and changed my life. He gave me a magnificent story. To those of you who have one foot in what you think is the good life and one foot foot is a kind of a closet Christian, bad idea. You will never know how magnificent Christianity really is. You will never know how glorious Christ really is. It's only when you jump in boots and all, taste and see that the Lord is good, is when you will taste and see how glorious the Lord is. Meryl and I travel all over the world all the time. And one of the tests of where we will eat is by the busyness of the restaurant. See, because people have tasted and eaten, and they're saying it's good, so we will go and taste and eat. Even if the smells are strange for us, even if our tummy turns a little bit, it's still worth going there because people have tasted and eaten and said that it's good. Don't flirt with Jesus. He's only a good husband. He's a really bad boyfriend. Because he's jealous. He wants you all. I love talking about marriage. I met Meryl when she was 15. I led her to Jesus, baptized her in water. We had a very humble belief that if it says so in the Bible, we'll do it. So I read in the Bible, believe and be baptized. So I baptized her in water. Married 30 years. Absolutely love marriage. It's a love-driven adventure of incompatibility. (laughs) People get divorced because they're incompatible. I'm confused. I got married to be incompatible. Otherwise, I would have married a guy. (laughs) I mean, isn't that true? Why do we love the mystique of her femininity? Then we get married and it irritates us. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm glad it's funny, but I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just... 
thinking it is. Meryl is an absolute mystery. I've known her for 33 years. We've been married for 30. We spent our 30th anniversary in Paris. Very exotic, very fun. But she still captivates me with her mystery. I still don't get her. That's why I remain married to her. She reassures me she will never allow me to understand her. Because the moment I do, I will lose interest. I love talking about my kids. I have three kids. My oldest daughter is married, leads a church in Perth with her man. She's an extraordinary woman. At the age of 12, her now husband saw her as an 18-year-old. She was 12 with braces and pigtails. And he was 18, a senior at their school, was running up to the gymnasium, and God said, stop, as best as he could hear God. He said, look down, and there was my 12-year-old daughter with blonde hair, braces, and he felt God said, you will marry her one day. It's a bit awkward when he's a senior and she's in middle school. What do you do with that? Well, they got married one month after she turned 18. And God was right in the middle of it. Don't you love God's surprises? Don't try and overly outwork God. Because he's just so much cleverer than we are. I love talking about my daughters. Uh, my second daughter is uh, in London right now. She's uh, all pairing, she's involved in worship, she's playing in clubs and pubs, and she is with her boyfriend, who is a Brit. I have an 11-year-old son. Right now, he's looking after two- and three-year-old boys at our home church because of a, the value of discipleship. He gets discipled by men that I disciple, and he disciples the 12-year-olds. So as an 11-year-old, sorry, my love, the little, yeah, the, did I say? I'm sorry, the two-year-olds, two-year-olds. So he's busy discipling the two-year-old boys at the home base. Don't ask me what he's teaching them. I don't really want to know. I love talking about you. I love heroes of the faith, and I do tell, talk about you. In fact, there are people who have prayed for this morning and prayed for you in Australia, in the United Kingdom, in Africa, and in America because they know we are here. I love inner city churches, going and bringing the gospel of light to the dark, shadowy places of life, where Christians have retreated into comfortable suburbia, living in white picket fence, isolated, segregated communities, and a few like you are re-engaging in the inner city where culture is formed, mindsets are fashioned, and the spirits are fought, won or lost. I love talking about you. That's what Meryl and I have given our life to. I want to take you to the scriptures this morning, and I hope I can do you good. I love coming into churches right in the beginning stages. The Bible speaks about foundations, laying foundations in. My father built warehouses. And I remember as a little kid going with him, and, and he would pull up his pickup and roll out the blueprints, and I'd have my little hard hat on, and he would have his on, and he would call the bricklayer and the, 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 the electrician and the plumber and the, the architect and the engineer, and he would call them in, and they would wrestle their way through the blueprints so that by the time they'd done, on time, the building can do what the building was meant to do. The Bible says God is an architect and builder. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. We do not design the architecture. It is God in His inimitable wisdom Beauty and creativity who creates the architecture for a church in downtown Long Beach called the Garden. We discover his blueprints and then we apply it with passion and with enthusiasm and with joy. I hope 
Your Christianity stirs passion inside of you. I am a lover of sport. I can easily get out of my chair and hoot and holler and scream and shout and punch the air. But you know what? I love Jesus more. And I can do that for Jesus far more. I come here to these kind of contexts and I try to be really cool. And, but if I'm honest, I want to scream and shout and declare just how extraordinary and how magnificent and how wonderful He really is. He took a barefooted Afrikaner boy from a farm and He made him for, he, he, he loved me so much that I could do nothing but love Him back. And my love is so insipid in comparison to his love. And he gave me a story. He said to me as an 18-year-old, will you love and trust me and watch and see what I do with your life? And the biggest dream I had was that we would lead, Meryl and I, once we were married, would lead this really cool hip church in Durban, which is the surfing capital of South Africa. Now we travel the world. We go to the most extraordinary places, meet the most incredible people, because God said, will you trust me with your journey? Don't manage your journey and then offer God an insipid sacrifice of praise by singing a few words. The greatest act of worship is a surrendered life. That's the greatest act of worship. And when you live a surrendered life, it is so easy to come into the ambience of worship and lift our hands up or jump up and down or stand pensively, posture irrelevant, heart exploding with the wonder of our Jesus. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, please. That was my introduction. It's a delight to be here. I'm a very proud dad. I'm a very proud grandpa. I come into these situations and I must say I feel a little grandpa-ish because, yeah, I know I don't look grandpa, but Darren and Alex are very special couple. Empower them. Empower them. Empower them as they lead you. As they lead you. They're not called to follow you. None of you. They're called to lead you. The word shepherd is given to the leaders because they are, like Psalm 23, following Jesus' example. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me. And when we appropriate that to the leaders on the church, empower them to lead you. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Great text. Paul has taken 11 chapters. He's taken 11 chapters to expound this rough diamond church. Planted in the most dastardly of cities. Athens was the sophisticated city. It was the city of arts and culture. It was the city of, of, of uh, can I use a criticism? It was a juji city. It was cool, it was hip, it was buzzy. Corinth was the blue collar city. Now, I've never been there, so I may use this example poorly. It was the Philadelphia. It, it was, or something, or something. It was that blue-collar, rough diamond, wild, promiscuous, out-of-control, uh, cracked-hand, chafy kind of person who, who, who found their identity in the temple where I think a thousand prostitutes gave worship to their idols outwardly and by way of their body. And so this church was planted in this tough, robust, hard, gutsy environment, and Paul loves them. 
He loves this church. Even they did they do about everything wrong. He says, you are the seal of my apostleship. I love that. It's like going to the naughtiest kid in your family. You've got five kids. And instead of going to the one who's straight A, who is, gets all the awards and, and plays football and basketball or softball or something, and, and going to, of all the kids, and you go to the, can I use the word runt of the litter? The one who's always in trouble. The one who always breaks an arm. The one who's always in detention. And say, you are the seal of my parenthood. That's what Paul's saying. He's not going to the other churches that are generous and kind and sacrificial. He's going to this church where they let a guy sleep with his mother-in-law. They have lawsuits. They're hating. They're fighting. They're boxing. They're arguing. They're gossiping. And he says, now you are the seal of my apostleship. What an act of humility. And he takes 11 chapters building up. And let's have a look at what he says to us and what is relevant to this context today. I'm reading from the ESV. I know that some of you have a slightly different translation, but we get the essence of it. Now is the opening word. In the light of, because of, everything I've said so far, now let's take the next step. He's using a linear argument, which is so important for us to understand. It's a bit like um, he's just taking one layer off at a time, dealing with one thing at a time. Concerning spiritual gifts. And that's a theologically difficult word for the translators, because it could mean one of three things. It could mean spiritual gifts. It could mean spiritual people. It could mean simple spirituality. About spirituality or spiritual people or spiritual gifts, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now the garden. I don't know how many of you have come to faith here or at Rock Harbor or somewhere else. But there is something in this text which gives us a window. We peep through the curtains when my daughter gave birth. I I'm not really big on rules. You know, rules are guidelines to me at best. When I want to do something, I kind of want to do it. And so when my daughter gave birth, she was an absolute stud. She's a little bitty thing like her mom. And uh, she just squeezed these nine-pound suckers out. She didn't have epidurals and other stuff. She just huffed and puffed. And so I couldn't wait. I couldn't hang around. And okay, that's where the dads and grandpas waited. I kind of waited when the nurses weren't watching. And I ducked in and I saw the door of her room was slightly ajar and the curtain was slightly open. And there was my daughter just huffing and puffing and squeezing and Merrill encouraging and Mark by her side praying and my other daughter in there. Just having, and, and it was like this peep through. And she saw me and she said, Dad, I'm doing okay, you know. For real? I mean, for real? I wanted to walk in there and slap somebody, you know what I mean? What are you doing to my girl? See, see, Paul is saying, I want to give you a window into spirituality here. You, you, you're out in the corridors of faith. You, you, you're in the waiting room. But, but can I take you just a little bit deeper? Can, can I open the curtains for you just to have a look at what lies on the other side of what you are comfortable? See, folks... Spirituality is like an onion. We can all determine how far we go and God leaves us. But I've never seen a child happy at Christmas when there is one unwrapped gift at the tree. Have you? They may get 10 gifts each. And there's one gift at the tree unwrapped. They may get everything. What's that? Wrapped. What did I say? Wrapped, wrapped, wrapped. Sorry. One gift wrapped, wrapped, unwrapped. 
Wrapped. Wrapped. Now you know why she has to travel with me. I confuse myself. One gift wrapped at the tree. And they've got all the gifts they want. Everything on their list is bought. Dad, what's that? Who's that for? What's in there? No, no, you've got all your gifts. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. No, Dad, see, that's the hunger. Jesus said, ask, seek. Keep seeking. Whoever is hungry. It's almost like God says, okay, you, you've got your gifts. No, no, there's still more. I was in Miami in January meeting with, um, Todd was there as well, meeting with a, guy, a group called Future Travelers. Mega churches that are all saying, there must be more than this. Come on, what? We've got buildings, programs, thousands of people, money in the bank. Is this it? Kill myself. Is this it? Is this what I'm going to do the rest of my life? Is this it? No, of course it isn't. There's still a gift under the tree that's waiting for you. One more adventure. One more truth, one more revelation, one more opportunity. That's what Paul's saying. Don't be ignorant. Look, I've taken 11 chapters to walk you through, but this is a really cool thing. Then he goes on to say, let's read it. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However you were led. In other words, all our gods will never satisfy. Whatever... Your idol or your neighbor, your friend's idol is, it'll never satisfy. You just ever want more. You just want more. You just want more. But it never satisfies. My Jesus satisfies me. Honestly, I'm 52. I love him passionately. I'm not a professional. I have no training. Never went to seminary. I fell in love with Jesus as an 18-year-old, and I said, I'm in. I'm not a professional pastor. I'm I'm not a seminarian or a clergyman. I am a Jesus lover. He, he loves me. Oh, he loves me. Oh, how he loves me. That's why I talk about him. Not a mute idol. My football will never satisfy me. I can paint my face and get my scarf and wear my beanie and put a piece of cheese on my head. It will not satisfy me. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Theologians say, we don't know why Paul put that in there. I think I do. Can I suggest, humbly? This chapter is all about the gifts. It's about the gift under the tree that's not yet opened. He's taken 11 chapters to talk about a whole lot of really good Christian stuff. And then he says, there's still a gift under the tree. And he says, these gifts are for the gospel. I'm not going to open them for you until you understand why they're there. Well, Chris, I don't know if I want to be a charismatic, you know. I don't know if I want to be weird like, no, 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 no. We're not talking culture, denomination, or style. We're talking about a gift under the tree that's still wrapped that's got your name on it. That's what we're talking about. And then he carries on and he says this. 
Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 31 verses, 5 of them deal with the spiritual gifts. 26 of them deal with the framing of it. And here's one of the major frameworks. Do you know what he's talking about here? He's talking about the Trinity. I want to say, hang on. Just time out. Talk to me about the gifts. And he says, no, if you don't understand this, you won't understand that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I've been saved 32 years out of the Jesus people movement. As I looked at my own journey, the two churches we've led, one in Africa that we planted, one in America we replanted. We look at the churches Meryl and I have ministered and partnered with and helped planted around the world. There is a trend. Here it is. We feel we have the right to pull out our God catalog. I drive a Land Rover. Got a, not a brand new one. But imagine me going to the Land Rover dealer and the guy says, oh, absolutely. Would you like a Land Rover? What color would you like? Would you like leather seats? Would you like with or without this, the, this, this uh, navigation, GPS, you know, roll up windows, whatever the case may be. And what happens, here is my thesis, is that we feel we have the right to apply the God catalog to our spirituality. God the Father. Oh, I love talking about God the Father. I'll tell you exactly where I was when I heard the story that God is my Father. My father was an alcoholic. I grew up in an alcoholic home. Knew my father loved me, but I knew that he drank way too much and the trauma and tragedy that it caused in my family. And it was a hot February day, like Miami. I was down at a swimming pool at a friend's apartment. I was a young preacher. I didn't even know what to preach. We planted the church. I was an accidental church planter. I was a school teacher, actually. And I listened, put this, it was the old days of a cassette. And I put the cassette things on and I lay by the pool. And I was actually just looking for a message, to be honest. I didn't have a clue what to preach on. And Lauren Cunningham spoke that God is my father. And I wept and I wept and I wept as God healed me. They write books about me, you know that? Children of alcoholic parents. Never needed a day's counsel because the great counselor got hold of me and he healed me. My pops is wonderfully saved. I walked in today just to this inward smile. My brother's just planted a church in South Africa. My father has the keys. He is the set-up guy. He is 78. He is as strong as an ox. When God saved him, God healed him. The medical records of before and after, you feel like they should be switched because his liver and his pancreas is so healthy that the doctors say they must be the wrong way round. The old butchered liver and pancreas must be the old one. And the young, strong, vibrant one must have been when you were a young man. And it's not the case. God so healed my pops that he flipped him medically to have a vibrant, healthy liver my dad's heads up the setup team and he is as strong and as tough as a construction worker is you don't mess with pops if he says put that straight he is germanic it is straight it is not almost straight it is not nearly straight it is absolutely straight or he will look at you with his deep piercing blue eyes and you will crumble 
Because my brother is going to get up and preach. And everything had better be absolutely right for my brother to preach. Or you mess with pops. You know, you know what I'm saying? I love the teaching of God as my father. But I do not have the right to stop my God conversation there. I love Jesus, as you've heard. The wonder, the amazement, the mystery of salvation. Why would God take me? I don't have clean hands and a pure heart. My mind wrestles with lusts and thoughts and opinions. Wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of sin? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. So help me, God. And I say, Paul, that's me. I'm just like that. But my Bible says that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. I love talking about Jesus. But I don't have the right to pull out my God catalog and say, you know, I really dig the Father. The Son's kind of cool and groovy and, you know, He washes me with His blood and all that really cool stuff. A bit of a mystery. I can't imagine someone pouring blood on me and I like it. But, you know, I'll take it. Holy Spirit, mm, He's that embarrassing cousin that you have to invite to the wedding. You know what I mean? But you kind of put him behind the palm tree. You hide him a little bit. Put him with the kids. They want extra seat, you know, because he may say something or do something you really don't want. You quietly sidle up to Uncle Sam and say, Uncle, can you just keep an eye on him because he's really embarrassing? So we silently pull out our God catalog and we say, we like the Father, we like the Son, but the Holy Spirit, mm. but you know how wonderful the Holy Spirit is in this journey? Because he's the one, the Father has good works prepared in advance for me to do. As Paul says in Ephesians, the Son, he qualifies me. When I feel so dirty, I feel so disconnected, I don't even feel spiritual. I don't feel like I'm in touch with God. His voice is silent. The Bible doesn't even read like a good novel. Worship is like, <laughs> I can't get it out. It's like I've got sawdust in my mouth. I hope no one notices, I think to myself, but I can't sing that stuff today. And then I look at him and there's a smile on Jesus' face and he says, I qualify you. He didn't pray this week. I qualify you. You didn't read your Bible this week? I qualify you this week. See, isn't that glorious? But then the Holy Spirit has the, the privilege of taking us on the adventure. Waza, <whistles> which is the black word for come. Waza, come. Let's go and have an adventure. And like two mischievous little 13-year-olds, the Holy Spirit says, come on, do you think we should heal someone today? Yeah, what the heck? Let's heal someone today, you know? Let's get someone saved today. You want a word of knowledge? Let me show you something about that person. It's not nearly as weird and as strange and as undesirable as we've been led to believe. It's the Holy Spirit's kindness. Folks, the Holy Spirit can do whatever He does without us. He doesn't need us. He's the comforter, the counselor, the empowerer, the partner, the parakletos. And Paul says, how are we doing time-wise? Oh, dear Lord. I want to preach in eternity one day, don't I? I want to preach like for a thousand years. <laughs> Just one message, a thousand years. My wonderful wife is my theological accountability person. You know, she kind of keeps me accurate and sharp and, and it keeps me walking in a way that honors you and keeps the time close to me. Be so wonderful. I mean, I joke with her. I say, whenever I'm stretching the envelope a little bit, I never look at her. <laughs> because when I get the, you know, 
Then I know, just look over her. Just preach over her. So folks, this is a new church. It's a young church. This is a church in its foundational days. This is going to determine the footprint for how high and how wide and how beautiful and how extraordinary and how unique and how mysterious you'll be. Do you want to be bland and boring within five to ten years? You can. You can. Because you, you, you know what? You, like me, you get older. John Mayer sings a song about gravity. He's singing about old age. It's working against me. Your butt starts drooping. You know the tummy. You know those great pecs? They start getting boobish. It's all about that. That's what happens. And I, you, can, you can just become a really cool old church. And there's no mystery and there's no surprise and there's no uncertainty and there's no sense of the Holy Spirit breaking in on you and what's the Holy Spirit going to do today and how can we partner with Him today? Can you understand why Paul is taking time? He hasn't got to the gifts yet. He hasn't even got to talk about what the gifts are. But he is saying unless you understand this theological framework, the gifts won't make sense. We always want to give our two-year-old kid or grandkid a gift that's too old for them. And then they sit and play with the box. We say, no, no, not the box, the gift, the train. Oh, yeah, 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 box, you know. Open, roll it over. Because we don't understand the mechanisms of what the gift is. And the Holy Spirit here is, is uh, Paul is framing our conversation with this notion, no God catalog. We don't have the right to choose. We don't say, well, we want the Father, we're like the Son, but the Holy Spirit, mm. As a community, we open our hearts and we say, all of you, into all of me, so that through all of us, we can do all that you want us to do and to be. That word of knowledge, it's not so mysterious. When God shows you something about someone else that you have no right to know. You don't, there's no possible way. That moment when as a preacher you stop and you say, hang on. This morning you were at your sink and you were cleaning up after the breakfast. And you looked up and said, God, I'm so tired of going to church. I don't even know if you're real. You sitting there and your heart starts pounding. That's me. That's exactly what happened last Sunday morning. I wasn't there. I was preaching at Phil and Jen's church in Costa Mesa. And one of our gals, big preggy tummy, walked up to the front and said, Al, I've got this, I don't know what it is, I've got this word, but it's about a couple. Forgive me if I don't get it exactly right, but it's something like this. A couple who was saying we want to give up. We've been married just a short time, but we want to give up. We are done. At the end of the meeting, a couple, married for about a year, run to one of the pastors. Run, literally, together, weeping. We come from two families that are promiscuous, full of adultery. We've committed adultery against each other. And this week, we said we don't know if we want this marriage and we Christians, and we don't know what to do with it. See, it's all framed 
around the wonder of the Trinity working in our community. It's not nearly as scary, nor nearly as mysterious, nor nearly as weird as it's led to believe. And then Paul goes on, and I am trying to land it. I want to honor you guys. But Paul then gives us five disclaimers about the gifts. We haven't started with the gifts yet. But you see, all of this makes sense. Our theology, our mission, now, ecclesiology, the church. And Paul says, now listen, understand this. The gifts are for the common good. The gifts aren't there to masquerade, walk up and down, and all right, this is my gift, this is what I do. It's for the community. That's what the gifts are there for. And therefore, he says, secondly, he says, don't say, I don't belong here. I love being a father. Absolutely love it. Speaking at Biola this week, and I remembered my two little girls standing on my feet, dancing with me. Come on, Daddy, let's dance together. And us dancing. Look, Mom, we're dancing. Well, they're not dancing. I'm dancing. They're just on my feet, cuddling up to me, dancing. And Holy Spirit says, come and dance with me. See, the enemy, please hear me. The enemy loves create an environment where I feel like I don't belong anymore. If I had a dollar for every believer who feels that way in any given meeting, I will retire very happy, very rich, very young. Because one of the enemy's great trying approaches is, I don't know if I belong here anymore. That's never a God question. It is a whisper from the great deceiver. My middle daughter, she teases us all the time. She says, I know I'm adopted. So you really are. My other two kids are blonde, she's brown. My other two kids are a little quieter, she's loud. We know she's adopted, don't we? But the humor of that moment oftentimes images the voice, the whisper of the enemy. I don't know if I belong here anymore. And then he goes on to say, let no one say, I have no need of you. Because not only if the enemy can't get it right to disengage you, I don't know if I belong. No one greeted me this morning. No one hugged me, loved me, held me. Then he said, well, definitely I have no need of you. And then Paul does something extraordinary, and and I'll land with this. He does something extraordinary. He says, you know what? God gives honor and profile to the most unpresentable parts using the body. Isn't it amazing that I don't cover my eyes? I don't feel obligated morally to cover my eyes. But I feel morally obligated to cover my bottom. And Paul uses this extraordinary analogy by saying the eye, the hand, the ear. And then he goes and speaks about the most unpresentable parts of being great value in the community. I want to say this to you. The joy of Christian community is not that we strut the eye, the mouth, the hand, the feet. It's not that the public, the profile, the beautiful are those that get given all the accolades. The true genius of Christian community is the unpresentable parts that get honor. It is you who stumbled this week. 
It is you who fell this week. It is you who stood naked in a boyfriend's bedroom and you said, oh God, why did I do that and again? It is you that the Bible speaks of as giving honor and respect because your journey is a tough one. And you fell, stumbled, hurdled over an obstacle that you should have gained victory in. I love the fact, 31 verses, only five deal with the gifts, 26 deal with the framework. Are you endorsing that, Chris? Of course I'm not. My closing story. Last year, Darren was there. Last year, I hosted an event in London called Church Planting in a Sophisticated Culture. It was intentionally small. We had about 30 church planters and their wives come in from around Europe for a two and a half day conversation. The objective of the exercise were not lectures and monologues, but it was conversations and chatter. One of the most pivotal moments within that was an afternoon we had, I think it was the Wednesday after lunch. Spontaneously, I interviewed three of the wives. One planted in London, one planted in Canada, and one planted in Chicago. When we got to the girl from Canada, it was an incredibly sweet moment. Her name is Rachel. Her husband flies for Canadian Air. When she was 16, 16 or 17, eh, my love? She became pregnant. Christian family, been in a church her whole life, and she became pregnant. She tells the story, because she couldn't and wouldn't abort, of coming to church Sunday after Sunday with this little kid, and every single time she walked in, and the stain of her failure overshadowed her joy. And she would sit at the back with her head down in her chest, tears every Sunday, just tears washing her cheeks as her, the dismay of her failure was reminded every Sunday. And one day a guy walked in and he fell in love with her and he loved her and he cared for her and he adopted her little girl as his own. That in itself would be a glorious story. But you see, Guy flies for Air Canada and because they're planting a church, it's many a moment, many a meeting where he gets called up to say, you've got to fly. And she has to lead the meeting. And she said, I call my little girls and she said, girls, mommy has to go and preach now. I need you to get yourself dressed. I need you to get yourself ready. And she said, her little girls, it's as if they know. She's got two of them. As if they know this is a really big moment. She says, I get up and I preach. The girl who was ashamed to walk into the back row and her child, a daily reminder of her own sinfulness, now gets up to preach in a growing church plant in Montreal, Canada, aware of the mercy of God. The gifts are not for the strong, powerful, super spiritual. It's just for the ordinary people like you and me who stumble and fall and wrestle with our own humanness. But know that there's a gift under the tree that God has put our name on. Let's pray together. Precious and wonderful Jesus. We're amazed at your grace and awed by your mercy. 
Why would you want to reach out to us? There's not a person in this room who would put up their hand and say, I deserve salvation. I deserve redemption. I deserve the washing of the blood. Not one of us. In fact, everyone is a whole lot more like Rachel, who stumbled our way into a Christian community with our heads down, knowing the fallenness of our own humanity. But you pick us up. You robe us with your beauty. You put your righteousness around the most unpresentable parts of us. And then in your kindness, you invite us to a journey of faith. Thank you for these incredible men and women. Thank you for their courage and their strength in weakness. To come and bring the light of God into this shadowy inner city world. And I pray, Lord, firstly, let there be a full and wondrous revelation of God three in one. Let there be, secondly, just this extravagant revelation of grace and mercy, so undeserving and yet so extravagantly given. And those things, Lord, which Satan comes to throw against us day after day after day, our stumblings and our fallings and our wretched humanness, thank you that it's covered by the blood of Jesus. Even we who feel the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low, Paul said that of himself. I was the worst of all sinners because of the wonder of the gospel and the generosity of God's kindness. Brand that into our hearts. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear other messages from The Garden, or if you would like to find out more about The Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org.